Well, friends, I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, we are continuing in our sermon series on the book of 1 Samuel this morning. And if this is your first time interacting with the book of 1 Samuel, it would not be a surprise. It is a book in uh, the Old Testament. And it's a story that is one of a spiritual awakening in Israel's life. Here's Israel. It is a nation that God rescued. It is a nation that God has called to be his people. And it, this is a story of 1 Samuel that has t- takes place over several generations. And we're continue, continuing this morning to see the relevance of God's word from, from 1 Samuel to our life uh, this morning. And so... We will be looking at uh, almost the entirety of 1 Samuel chapter 9, skipping a few verses, but going to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 2. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. This is God's word that he has spoken. This is what God's word that he has given to us so that we would know him. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, son of a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. One day, the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, wandered off. Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. Saul and his servant went through the hill country of Ephraim. And then through the region of Shalashah, but they did not find them. They went through the region of Shalim, nothing. Then they went through the Benjamite region, but still they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come on, let's go back, or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Look, the servant said, There's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. Suppose we do go, Saul said to the servant. What do we take the man? The food from our packs is gone, and there is no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will teach us which way we should go. Formerly in Israel, a man who was going to inquire of God would say, Come, let us go to the seer. For the prophet of today was formerly called the seer. Good, Saul replied to his servant. Come on, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they were climbing the hill to the city, they found some young woman coming out to draw water, and they asked, Is the seer here? And the woman answered, Yes. He is ahead of you. Hurry. He just now entered the city because there is a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the priest can eat. Go up immediately. You can find him now. So they went up toward the city. Saul and his servant were entering the city when they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, At this time tomorrow I will send you a young man, 
I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen their affliction. I have seen the affliction of my people. For their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I will tell you everything that is in your heart. As for the donkeys that was that wandered away from you three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found. And who does all Israel desire but you and your, all your father's family? Saul responded, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjamite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? And jumping ahead, Verse 26, they got up early, and just before dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, get up, and I'll send you on your way. Saul got up, and both he and Samuel went outside. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I'll reveal the word of God to you. So the servant went on. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it out on Saul's head, kissed him and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Today, when you leave me, you will find two men at Rachel's grave at Zelsa in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you were looking for have been found. And now your father has stopped being concerned about the donkeys as is worried about you asking, what should I do about my son? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given up to us, that is given to us to know you, to grow in our love for you, so that we would follow you, that we would, that we would follow you all the days of our life. So Father, may you draw our hearts to you this morning as we hear your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Americans tend to have a fascination with the British royals. It's rather ironic since here's America, and they, they, as my mother calls it, it was the, war, the, re, the rebellion against Britain, as my mother is British. But we have a, this fascination with the British royals, members who are a part of the monarchy. They do not rule over us, but we have this fascination with them. But over in Britain, here's the royals. The ironic thing in this sense is that they do not really have power. They do not really have power. It's Parliament who has power. It's a constitutional monarchy where, where there is a queen or a king that is really a symbolic head of state. And, but Parliament is the one who has power. And this dynamic that I'm getting at is that here is a visible king. But the real power is somewhere else. And this is a dynamic that we're seeing in our passage this morning. The idea that I want us to think about, or perhaps even a title for this sermon, is that here is a visible king, and yet the hidden hand of God. A visible king, yet the hidden hand of God. And in our text, there is a turning point in 1 Samuel. There, that there is a transition going on in the life of Israel. 
that up until this point, we have been hearing and we have been reading about Samuel, and now we are beginning to learn about Saul. And we are stepping into Saul's lifetime. And that if, if going back to 1 Samuel 1, that was a generation about Eli and Hannah. And then we go to Samuel. And now we're going to Saul. So there's been three generations that we have been considering since the beginning of 1 Samuel. A lot of time has passed since then. And God has actually done a lot since then. That if you go back to the very beginning, where in 1 Samuel 1, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. That if you go to God speaking to Samuel, you find that the word of God was rare. That there were no visions. But now the word of God is plenty. That even, that here's Israel, this was last week, Israel was rejecting the bad leadership of Samuel's sons. And that is a really good thing. They were taking bribes. They were corrupting justice. And they rejected them. But instead of turning to God and asking for another prophet or another leader, they go to Samuel and say, give us a king so that we would become like other nations. That, as uh, our guest preacher last week was Tucker Ellison, as he put it, is that they were willing to stop being different in order to be exactly like other nations. That is what they were willing to do in order to have this visible king. And so as we think about this passage, there's one question that arises for us. And that question is, what is God doing? What is God doing? And in terms of an outline, this is like the first, I, first point, that what God, here we, we see the hidden hand of God, and this is the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of providence. Because what's going on in this passage is that the Lord is at work. That what the Lord is doing is that he is making for them a king. That God, in fact, is always up to something. We can miss out on that. We can be oblivious to that. We can overlook that. But God is always, always up to something. And this is what theologians call the doctrine of providence. And before we actually answer the question of what is providence, let's clarify what providence is not. What, what's what providence is not? Because our culture speaks about karma, where good things will happen to you if you do good things, where bad things will happen to you if you do bad things. Perhaps you'll hear our people say things like, the universe will send you this, the universe will do that, or what goes around what is what comes around. When life gives you lemonades, lemon. When life gives you lemons, makes lemonade. There you go. So in terms of like clarifying what providence is, not, is like it, here we see that pro, this is, none of these things really describes what providence is because providence is not fatalistic. It's not deterministic. It's also not impersonal. Because what providence is, is actually God caring for you. What providence is, is actually God providing for you. God is at work in your life every moment of every day with every breath that you take. He's always at work. That God has designed your life. That he, has, he orchestrates your life. That even before the creation of the world, God has been working out all things for your good and his glory. That these two things are intertwined together. 
And so while there is sin and evil in this world, that he is not the author of it, he's greater than it though, and he uses it for our good and his glory in our lives. That, that, this is what the doctrine of providence is getting at. And so just briefly, here's two verses. That Philippians 1.6 says this from the Apostle Paul, that I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That here's this good work of salvation that God's doing in our lives. And here's Romans, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So again, here's providence where God is working in your life, that he is providing for you. In fact, the first time that we see the, the word provide in Scripture is Genesis 22.8 in regards to a name of God, Jehovah Jireh, that God will provide. And see, as Christians, we believe that there's one there's one who made everything. There's one who redeems everything. There's one who sustains everything. That one is God as a person. This is who he is. This is what he does. So there's a person behind everything going on in your life who is working everything out for your good in your life. And this is what the doctrine of providence is. And we're seeing this at work here in the life of Israel, that God is at work in their life. And so what in the world is God up to? This is the question that we ought to be asking here. What in the world is God asking? And this is, on, so on one hand, while we have the hidden hand of God, here we have a very visible king for us. Because what is God up to? We, this is what we see. And we already know this, if, well, if you were here with us last week, stepping back to chapter 8, verse 22, God says to Samuel, appoint a king for them. Appoint a king for them. And then Samuel sends people back to their homes. And so who is going to be king? That's, going, that's a natural question that should be on our minds as we stepped into this passage. And the next verse in chapter 9, verse 1, tells us of a prominent man named Kish, who's from a small tribe named Benjamin. Is he going to be king? That's what you should be asking. Because there's this rather a genealogy, or we're seeing his pedigree for us. He's a man who is very wealthy. Is he going to be king? Is it going to be Kish? No. But it's going to be his son, Samuel. Not Samuel, Saul. Saul's going to be king. And Saul actually has one of the most incredible introductions in all the Bible. How is he introduced? That he is said in verse 2, there was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Frank, frankly, friends, this should stand out to you. This is an odd way for anyone to be introduced in the Bible. Think about all the godly leaders throughout Scripture who are introduced. Moses. How is Moses described? That Moses was a humble man, that he was a meek man. When we see Moses being commissioned to go to Egypt, he says to the Lord, Lord, I can't do this. 
and it's revealed that he has some type of speech impediment. He may stutter or something, but he was the one who's called to lead Israel out of Egypt. But then think about Jesus. Jesus in Isaiah 53, how was Jesus introduced for us? That he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. Think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, that God chose the weak to shame the strong, and going on throughout all of Corinthians, that he is one who is boasting in his weakness. But then even there's King David. When Samuel goes to meet David, is that very specifically, David, he's the runt of the family. He is truly an afterthought to his father. And yet, Next to Jesus Christ, the person whom we know the most about in the Bible is David. So Saul, in other words, gets this introduction that should stand out to you in all of Scripture. He is the most popular man in Israel. And we should catch this contrast. One of the themes of Samuel is this just the position, this contrast between pride and humility. This is clearly caught for us in Chapter 2 in Hannah's prayer. But you see this contrast between Saul and David. But this contrast here, notice that this this is actually how our world works. The world does not want humility. The world does not want humble leaders. The world does not want leaders who boast in weakness. Not just that, Because it's deeper than that. The world does not want humility, nor does the world want to celebrate weakness. Because, friends, we don't want to be humble. And we don't want to be weak. And that's not what Israel's looking out for either. That Israel is saying, give us a king so that we would be like other nations. That is the desire of their hearts, that they want to be impressed. They want to have someone who's going to be popular and impressive. And when it comes to how our world works, think about when you apply for a job. You look at our accomplishments, look at our successes, look at who we know. This is how our world operates. So when you come to this right here and you take Israel's desire to be like other nations, when you take Saul's family wealth, when you take Saul being the most impressive Israelite, A plus B plus C equals tragedy. That's where the story for Saul is going. But Saul initially appears to be humble. Like jumping ahead, this is going, jumping ahead from where Saul meets Samuel, and Samuel says this. This is what Samuel says to Saul. It's striking that All of Israel, this is verse 20, all Israel desires you and your father's family. And this is when Saul says, am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? Isn't my clan the least important of all the clans in the Benjamite tribe? So why are you saying something like this to me? And later, as you go into chapter 10, when Israel gathers and they ca- they're casting lots and they're trying to, f- to figure out who's going to be a king, there's Saul, and he's hiding behind a wagon. So Saul initially appears humble. And there's two things. There's two possible explanations for this. And both of these explanations are things we need to consider because they're actually warnings to us. 
as I look within my own heart, I know there are warnings to my own heart. Here's the first one. The first one is that here's Saul. He truly may be humble here. But once he gets into a position of power, power corrupts him. Do you know that proverb? Uh, I think it was uh, one of the writers from the 1600s. That absolute power corrupts. Saul was king for 40 years. How would you change in your life over a 40-year time period? How would you change? How would you change over the course of your life? Is it a good change or is it a bad change? If if you're married, you may know this dynamic that there'll be a morning when you look at the person whom you're married to and you're like, I don't recognize you. And what your spouse is getting at is like you have changed in ways from when you started dating and, and got married. Like Tim Keller in his book on marriage, there's this wonderful chapter called Loving the Stranger. That's the dynamic that he's getting at. Because our work, our roles, our relationships, all these things influence us and change us. So here's Saul. How did he change? Did he go from having a humble heart and becoming proud? That should warn us because we can, that can happen to us. And we need to be on guard there. The second thing to consider is that Saul may be faking humility. That there are things that when we, there, we can put on a mask where we fake humility. Uh, here's a story that kind of gets at this. And that actually within our American history, one of the greatest heroes that we have in America is George Washington. That George Washington is a man who's, There's a book about him, and the book title is The Man Who Would Not Be King. And so that here's George Washington. He successfully commanded the Continental Army. He defeated the king tyrant. And when it came time to figure out who was going to lead this new colonial nation, everyone looked to him naturally. And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to be king. But when that meeting happened, he was there. He was dressed up in his milt, his uniform. He was wearing his ribbons. He had his sword and everything. That he was dressing to impress while saying, no, not me. That's not vulnerability. That's not humility. We can actually fake things for our own sake to get ahead instead of God's glory. So is that what's going on for Saul? So both of these considerations of faking humility or even considering how we change for the worst, this Saul's life is actually meant to be a warning to us on both of these parts. But as I began what, with the question of what's God doing, what does all this have to do with this doctrine of providence? What in the world is God doing? Well, here's the point. The point is, is that no earthly king is meant to be your king. No earthly leader is actually meant to be your leader. That's an absolute true statement. As a pastor, I'm your pastor. I'm not your king. The president is a president of a civil, na- a civil nation. He's a president. He's not our king. A Mark, King Charles, he's not the king. Parents are parents, not king. Bosses are employers, not your king. Spouses are not your king or queen. But Jesus is. Only Jesus is meant to be your king. Every leader who has ever lived will disappoint you. In fact, every person, with every person 
who has ever lived will fail you. Sorry, wrong word. Every person who has ever lived will disappoint you, except Jesus. Jesus will never fail you when everyone else fails you. Jesus, when you are disappointed with Jesus, it's actually because you should learn something there. That even when you are disappointed with Jesus, perhaps it's when a way he answers prayer. But nonetheless, Jesus will never fail you for one very simple reason. And it's because he is faithful to you. And so here's this picture of a visible king. And it's meant to show us someone else who should be our king. And this is our humble king. Jesus is actually our king of our lives. And we read this about Jesus in Philippians 2. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing, as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And so here's Philippians that's giving us this incredible picture of humility. And this is clearly demonstrated throughout Jesus' entire life. Think about the incarnation and what the incarnation truly means. That here's the creator of the universe who becomes a part of the created universe. That in his life, here's God who had, who got sick. He got the flu. He was sinned against. And in his death, he who was sinless, who was innocent, became sin and was judged as a sinner so that you and I would have life with God and, and be counted as righteous. And even in Jesus, in his burial, here's the creator of the universe, you would just truly imagine this. Here's the creator of the universe being tossed into a grave. That's humiliating. And this is the creator. That you see this in his sufferings, how he's whipped, how he's beaten, how he is cursed upon a tree. This is the humiliation of Christ. In fact, but here's the thing about the humiliation of Christ. Everything that he did was for you. That everything he did was in service to you because Jesus came to love you, that he loves you so that you would know God's love and that you would also be able to love others as well. That we read in Mark that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here is our Savior who came to serve us to experience his love so that we would serve others as well. In fact, there's one more example from Jesus' life that we need to think about as this one moment captures actually all these things that we are talking about. And it occurs during the Last Supper that Jesus got up, he grabbed a bowl, he had some water, he grabbed a towel, and he goes around to wash his disciples' feet. They spent the day walking, so their feet would have been covered in dirt and also poop from like birds. If you were playing softball yesterday, just remember all that dirt that was on your legs from the wind. But that is a small picture of what it was like for the disciples. 
In fact, so when Jesus gets up to do this, it was scandalous. It was shocking that Jesus would go and wash the disciples' feet. You gotta love Peter because Peter always tells you what he's thinking. And he says, what in the world are you doing? Because this is a task that's reserved for servants. Jesus, it's okay for you to serve me. You're my king and whatnot. But this task is beneath you. That's what Peter and the others tell Jesus. But here's the thing. that no, And what Jesus says to them is that you can have no part of me unless I serve you. You can have no part of me unless I wash your feet. Because what Jesus goes on to do right there is that Jesus is the one who actually defines what service is. That truly no task is beneath our Savior so that we would have life with him. Jesus is the one who serves and defines what service is. So with that passage, though, there in John 13, that is when Jesus is talking about loving one another. That is a command. That is the last command that Jesus gives to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he says, love one another. And the example of loving one another is through service. And it's a metaphor. Like, we're not going around washing each other's feet. And some of you may be thinking, oh, thank you. But it is a metaphor. Is there any task that's beneath you? Truly. Think hard about that question. Is there any task beneath you? Is there any role that is beneath you? Because what this is getting at is that as followers of Jesus Christ, that our life is not our own. And do we realize that? Do you realize that your life is not your own? And this is what Jesus wants you to realize. And friends, I struggle with this. So many of my relationships, in fact, yours are, too, are exactly like this too, but every relationship that I have is that gets at this dynamic. I know it through marriage. My life is not my own. I know this through my fatherhood. My life is not my own. My children want to be like, hey, can you come play with me? You want to come play cars with me? Like all the time. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. The question is, do I serve my wife? Do I serve my children? Do I, as your pastor, do I serve you? That in the way that Jesus calls me, is there any task that is beneath me? And where the, what this is getting at is that my life is not my own. It's not my own because Jesus is the one who went to the cross. He died for my sins. He rescued me from the judgment that I so richly deserve because I am a sinner. That's what Jesus has done for me, that he has rescued me. And so Jesus has the right to, to turn and say, follow me, pick up your cross, and follow me. And so this is honestly what I'm describing should be a joy and a comfort to us. And I want to end on this. This is a catechism question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That's the first question. It's a great question, but you're getting at the fact that this should be a joy and this should be a comfort. Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. Amen. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things work together for my salvation. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our only comfort in life and in death because Jesus is our king and he is the one who is at work in our life so that we would follow him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this wonderful truth that you are at work in our life, that when we wonder the question of what you are you doing in our life, you are at work. When we may be blind to it, may we, when we are oblivious to it, Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to see what you're doing, that your spirit would reassure us of your love and your grace and that you would give us comfort of what you are doing that we thank you for the wonderful promise that you will never fail us, that because you will never fail us truly, you will never disappoint us because you are working in our lives and because you are a king who is making all things new. We thank you for all that you have done for us, and we pray that you would continue to minister to our lives, that we would live out this truth for more in the days to come. In Christ's name I pray, amen.